But if you have your Bibles this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 5. We are going to try to finish this up this week, and we'll see how far we get. Uh, It's never a bad thing to take our time as we go through the Word of God and dwell on these things, and there's a, a lot to unpack in the Beatitudes and what Christ was telling His disciples there on the mountain. And so we are in verse 9 this morning. Last week we talked about the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We had mentioned that the only person who was ever pure of heart, who was ever guileless, uh, never had an ulterior motive, uh, never was looking for the satisfaction of his, his own self. He was, came to do the will of his Father, was Jesus Christ. We said that for us to be pure in heart only comes from knowing Christ, from being his followers, from accepting his righteousness that he gives us based on our profession of faith and repentance of our sin. And so he transitions from blessed are the pure in heart to blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so this morning, as we have been doing so, we're going to be flipping through various portions of Scripture and looking at what it has to say about each one of these Beatitudes, giving us a better indication of what Christ was telling His disciples. But He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The first thing when we think of that is to be reminded of who our ultimate peacemaker is. In all of the Beatitudes, as we've been going through them, we've been called to model the behavior of Christ as he has modeled it to us. And so he is telling his disciples, as you follow me, these are the characteristics that you should have. These are the things that you're going to experience. These are the things I want you to display to others because it is uh, counterculture. It's opposing to what the world is going to tell you, how to act, how to behave. When you come into different situations in your life, And so the great peacemaker is Christ himself as he came and brought peace to us. And so um, we were in Colossians 3 just a minute ago. We're going to be in Colossians 2, a chapter before that. Colossians 2, starting in verse 8. If you want to flip there this morning, Colossians 2, verses 8. We're going to be reading 8 through 15. A letter of Paul to the Colossian church. I said this is a very rich text um, to go through. And this is, I feel like I still have my glasses on. Sorry. I hurt my eye a couple weeks ago and I've had to wear my glasses. And today is the first day in two weeks that I've worn my, that I've worn my contacts. I finally put my contacts back in. And so there's still that, you ever have that ghosting effect where you're like, where, where are they? They're not there. All right, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's telling the Colossian church, just as you have learned Christ, continue to walk in Him. Don't be led astray by false teachers or any of that. And He tells them exactly why. And this morning it tells us how Christ has brought us peace. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him 
who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ, our great peacemaker, has brought us peace between our creator of God the Father. As in the Garden of Eden, when they disobeyed, when they had ate of the fruit they were not supposed to be, and sin separated them, and there is this chasm that now existed because God can have nothing to do with sin. Christ came and laid down his life for us by forgiving us our trespasses because the debt was paid by the sacrifice of Christ that stood against us with all of its legal demands. Nobody can stand up against you at the day of judgment when you come before the Lord and say, this, this is why he should be thrown in hell. This is why she should be thrown in hell. As Satan, the great accuser, would be before and saying, "He, they are mine not yours, and Christ can say, but I have paid the price. My blood has covered them. It is my righteousness that they have. Christ, the great peacemaker, has brought us peace, has brought us reconciliation with the Father, and therefore we have been called to the ministry of reconciliation as well. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Starting in verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in in verse 14. Paul to to the Corinthian church reminding them of these things, of the ministry of reconciliation that they have in Christ because of what he has done. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's talking about what Christ has done for us, what Christ has done for them, what Christ has done for the Corinthian church, that he died for all, and that all who live might no longer live for themselves, for our own passions, for our own selfishness, but we would be called to something greater. So he continues on. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. When we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we hated him, we despised him, we had nothing, we wanted nothing to do with him. But because of his sacrifice, we are no longer like that. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
Christ has made us new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, brought back together. The separation that was existed was closed off, no, brought back together, full restoration, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How great is that this morning to know what God has done for us, what Christ has done for us, and what he has called us to do in response in how we live our lives. Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. We're called the sons of God because of Christ, because of what he has done. And so those who are in Christ, who have his righteousness, have all of the benefits and the inheritance that comes along with being called his children. The ministry of reconciliation that he calls us to is not just reconciliation to the world. It's not just that we go out into the world and we present the gospel, we evangelize, we bring the good news to those that are dying and perishing, but it's also that we bring the good news and we bring the ministry of reconciliation into the family of God as well. Because there are times when we struggle, when we are at odds with one another, when there is conflict between different people, and the same principle applies. To live our life like Christ did. In Romans 12, verse 18, it says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Now we understand I can't control anybody else's reaction. I can't control anybody else's thing. But Paul is telling them, so far as it depends on you, on your own heart, on your own mind, on your own feelings, your emotions, all of these things, as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, which we've referenced before, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18 says this. He's talking about wisdom from above. He says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
sounds much like what we're talking about in the Beatitudes as Christ is talking to the disciples about all of these characteristics that they should be displaying. Marks of a Christian. How we should be living our lives. <clears throat> as I've mentioned before, I've uh, read extensively through John Stott's book, An Anglican Priest for Many Years. A godly man. I've thoroughly benefited from reading his discussion on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, from the message of the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this, Many examples could be given of peace through pain. When we ourselves are involved in a quarrel, there will either be the pain of apologizing to the person we have injured, or the pain of rebuking the person who has injured us. Or we may, be, we may not be personally involved in a dispute, but may find ourselves struggling to reconcile to each other two people or groups who are estranged and at variance with each other. In this case, there will be the pain of listening, of ridding ourselves of prejudice, of striving sympathetically to understand both the opposing points of view, and of risking misunderstanding, ingratitude, or failure. I feel like as we, I was going through this, he speaks directly to what is, is being experienced here in my own life, in the life of this church, and many of your lives. And so it's important to, uh, as we're talking about peace, how do we make peace with others? How has God called us to be peacemakers? Specifically, we said, obviously, to the world, it is bringing the good news. It is being in the ministry of evangelism, of reconciling those who are outside of the family of God, giving them the opportunity to hear and accept, to repent and believe and become part of the family of God. But the other part of that is, for those of us who already claim to be in the family of God, what do we do when we have differences? Christ said this in Luke uh, 17 verses 1 to 4. Luke 17 verses 1 to 4. He's talking with his disciples. He says this, and he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Jesus says this, pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. He's concerned about that. Many times the scripture says, guard your heart, do all of these things. It's about us. He says, pay attention to yourselves. One, because we're not above temptation. Be sure that it's not us. Watch, look, are we the ones that are involved in this? Or... On the other hand, if your brother, verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. See how that's different than the world's theology? How that theology, their philosophy. How it's different than how they would Say also, Matthew 18, 
Christ being counterculture. His way is better. Luke tells us, as Christ is speaking, go to your brother. If he has sinned against you, rebuke him. It's a thing between the two of you. Go work it out. See if you can work it out. Matthew 18 gives us a little more info. It says this in verse 15 of Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Matthew 18 is where we talk about even church discipline and the proper format of going and resolving conflict in our lives. The first step is when you know that there is conflict between you and a brother and sister in Christ, is our first response is go have an honest conversation with them. Go to them directly. It's not let's talk to this person and this person and this person and this person and then be like, eh, then I'll go to them. But it's no, go to that person, speak with them, have an open and honest discussion and try to come to a resolution. Seek reconciliation with one another. If it is such that they refuse to acknowledge their sin, he says, okay, take two or three others with you that have also seen these things. All right, the evidence of two or three witnesses that every charge may be established. Look, they're not even going to listen to a group of us. We see this. And then it says, well, then bring it before the church. And then the church will address it. And if they don't listen to the church, well, are they really living like Christ? Are they really a Christian? It says, nope, cast them out. Let him be to you as a Gentile and, uh, and a tax collector, meaning these are people that need to hear the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and be transformed. Now, I want to be clear about this when it says, if your brother sins against you. This is clear sin. This isn't, you know, I have a problem with the way you raise your kids. Like, you don't do the same things I do. Like, there's a difference between sin of the scriptures and just general disagreement. And so we want to be clear that if we're going to somebody in, in a rebuking fashion and saying this, it needs to be clear delineated sin from the scriptures saying you're doing this. It's as if saying you come here Sunday morning, you claim to be a Christian, and then somebody sees you later that night and you're partying in a club drinking and doing whatever. Like, well, that's not how you live your life. That's And that's open to the world. Somebody should be coming to you and saying, you shouldn't be doing this. Or if people are aware you're married and you're having an affair. That's clear sin. You need to address that. And so I want to be clear. We're talking about the things that were mentioned, many of the things even listed in Colossians 3 about you know, there's this unresolved anger that you have towards one another. This is where open and honest discussion between people, come, these things come out, you discuss them. You're both saying, we love God, we love Christ, let's come to reconciliation on these terms. Sometimes, as John Stott pointed out, it's you apologizing for something that you have done towards your brother or sister, 
or sometimes it's you rebuking a brother or sister in Christ. <clears throat> Later on, uh, also in Matthew 18, dropping down a few verses, 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. As many as seven times, because Christ had told him that before, if he comes to you seven times in a day, the same day. Can you imagine? He sinned against me, he comes to you. I'm sorry, I repent, you know, please forgive me. And then some other point in the day, what is this person? You know how frustrated that would be if your brother did that seven times in a day in your own human thing? What is Christ talking about? Peter says, seven times, Lord, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And as you remember, we talked about uh, a few weeks ago of the unforgiving servant. The parable, Christ goes into the parable right after telling Peter this, about the servant that owed 10,000 talents. He owed a huge amount of sum to a person. He couldn't pay the debt. Every right was within the person who held the ticket against him to say, okay, I'm going to throw you in prison. I'm going to garnish your wages. I'm going to do all of these different things until you're able to pay this debt off. And he couldn't. But he got down and begged for mercy upon this. I will pay everything. I beg you for mercy. And the person said, you know what? I'm going to cancel your debt. I'm going to, the 10,000 talents you owe me, gone. Don't worry about it. But then that same servant then goes and somebody under him owes him a much smaller portion of money. And yet his own heart, after just being forgiven of this huge amount, his own heart is so callous and hard that he can't even see that he should be extending the same type of forgiveness. And yet he says, no, I want him thrown in prison. I want to be paid the money that is due to me. And Christ is telling this parable because that is not the heart that he desires. He's talking about God has forgiven us this huge debt, this huge record that stands against us, that condemns all of us to hell, that condemns all of us to eternal separation from him. And he has canceled that record of debt that exists between us because of Christ's sacrifice. And because of that, he calls us to the ministry of reconciliation, to the ministry of forgiveness, to the ministry of repairing relationships. And so he's, Jesus is telling his disciples, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. They are following in the same exact vein as Christ, as he walked on this earth. John Stott said this, It is hardly surprising, therefore, that the particular blessing which attaches to peacemakers is that they shall be called sons of God. They are seeking to do what their Father has done, loving people with His love. As Jesus is soon to make explicit, it is the devil who is a troublemaker. It is God who loves reconciliation and who now through His children, as formerly through His only begotten Son, is bent on making peace. What he's saying is, as we are being the hands and feet of Christ, we should be exemplifying the characteristics of Christ, and peacemaking is one 
of those things. And it did not come to God without a cost. It cost a lot. It cost His only begotten Son. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So do not be surprised if it costs you something as well as you seek to make peace. Jesus goes on, verses 10 and 11. You're going to lump these two together. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus makes the transition from being a peacemaker to seeking peace with one another to then saying persecution. Your desire is to come before people to make peace, but that is not always going to be the case. He's always been up front with his disciples. He's always tried to prepare them. He's preparing them for when he will leave for what he knows has to come. And so he's preparing them for that inevitability, and he's preparing them, look, you are going to experience persecution. You are going to be ridiculed. You are going to be mocked. You are going to be beaten. You are going to have to go through all of these things. But he tells them, rejoice and be glad. In our pursuit of preaching the good news, in our pursuit of displaying the gospel in our lives and through our speech, there are people that are going to be vastly different and want to oppose Christ at every turn and will not seek to repent and believe, but will only become more callous and more hard. And in that state of mind, in that frame, they will seek to destroy those that follow God, that seek His righteousness, that hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, that have displayed the Beatitudes that Christ has mentioned in their lives, and so they will malign and they will persecute you in many different ways. Now, none of us likes to be persecuted. I mean, I don't know anybody that likes to say, yeah, bring it on. I'm ready for it. I'm here. I can take it. I don't, I don't say that. I don't, my desire is not to be there, but at the same time, I know reading the Scriptures, it will come, and Christ has given us His Word on, on what we should do. Much like the little kids are talking about the armor of God, we need to display that in our life so that when these moments come, we are standing firm on the rock of God. What kinds of persecution are we talking about? It's clear in uh, Jesus' speech here that he's not just talking about people just having disagreements or just not a, just calling you out on the things that you're living for of everyday life that have nothing to do with Christ. Specifically, he's talking about those that follow after Christ. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, meaning 
that as we hunger and thirst for righteousness, as we try to display these things in our life, as we try to be Christ to others and display Christ to others, we're going to come in direct conflict with some people and they will persecute us based on righteousness sake, on trying to be like Christ. Not that we are Christ, not that it's our righteousness, but it's the hunger and thirst in us for righteousness because of what God has done for us. And then he says in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He's very specific in terms of the persecution that you're going to feel and experience because it's on his account. You will be persecuted for your belief in Christ, for believing that there is only one way to heaven, for believing that it's only through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You'll be persecuted for that. You'll be called closed-minded and bigoted and all of these things because you believe that there's only one God and Jesus Christ is his Son and what he has done is the only way to salvation. You'll be persecuted for that. Jesus reminded his disciples in many other passages of the persecution that they were going to face and what he prepared them for in John chapter 15. Verses 18 through 20, it says, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Anyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ should experience this in their lives, to be persecuted for their faith. As he said, we are not greater than Christ. They malign him, they're going to malign you. Elsewhere in Scripture it says, Woe to you if all men speak well of you. If everyone speaks well of you, we're not just talking about, you know, the, within the family, but if everyone, even outside, everyone just speaks so well of you, are you displaying Christ or are you being silent on the issues that need to be addressed? Because you will become, you will be in direct conflict with the world if you follow Christ because his way of thinking is counterculture to the way of thinking of the world. 1 Peter 4, verses 3 through 5, Peter would tell them, his hearers, directly these things. For the time that, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He's saying, you know, you had this time, you used to live in this, but they still live in this. They still want to do this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. What he's saying is, because we behave differently, because we act differently in this world, you're going to be persecuted. 
because of, let's say, hey, maybe it's you don't go see the, the, the newest movie that out that everybody's raving about. Like, why wouldn't you? I remember when Fifty Shades of Grey, disgusting, came out, report of how influential it was in the church and that people were studying it. People were looking at it. These people were going to see the movie and were enjoying it. That is not being counterculture. That is not displaying Christ. And how sad that is that many times churches do not look any different than the outside world. We have been called against that. And we will be maligned for it. With respect to this, they are surprised that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. It's for our speech. They'll malign you for how you speak. They'll malign you for what you, how you act, what you watch on TV, what you don't watch on TV, what you do or don't say, what you will or won't do. Or even, you know, hey, we're going out uh, Sunday morning to go to this, and you say, no, Sunday morning is reserved to go to church. I go to church. People won't understand that. I've always said when my kids grow up, they love sports. A lot of sports now are played on Sunday. My kids will not play sports on Sunday. And it's sad that many parents allow their kids to do that. People that claim Christianity that are like, okay, it's okay for us not to be in church on Sunday. I have a problem with that. Because to me, that's an idol in somebody's life when sports is above Sunday morning worship and gathering together with other believers to worship God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is talking to his brother and giving him instructions, and he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I'm going to read uh, two things from John Stott that sum up this passage. Uh, well, he sums up this point on persecution, and I couldn't say it any better than he did, so I'm just going to read from what he said, because it speaks directly to us. He says, Persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. It's the value system of God, and it's the value system of the world. They're, they're irreconcilable. How did Jesus expect his disciples to react under persecution? Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. We are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, nor to sulk like a child, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, nor just to grin and bear it like a stoic, still less to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist. What then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should rejoice and even to leap for joy. Why so? Partly because Jesus added, your reward is great in heaven. We may lose everything on earth, but we shall inherit everything in heaven. Not as a reward for merit, however, because the promise of the reward is free. Partly because persecution is a token of genuineness a certificate of Christian authenticity. 
For so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. If we are persecuted today, we belong to a noble succession. The major reason why we should rejoice is because we are suffering, he said, on my account. On account of our loyalty to him and to his standards of truth and righteousness. Certainly the apostles learned this lesson well. For having been beaten and threatened by the Sanhedrin, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They knew, as we should, that wounds and hurts are medals of honor. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus would tell his disciples this. It's always been a comfort to me and an encouragement in dark times. He said, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. The Beatitudes, uh, in conclusion with John Stott, Beatitudes paint a comprehensive portrait of a Christian disciple. We see him first alone on his knees before God, acknowledging his spiritual poverty and mourning over it. This makes him meek or gentle in all his relationships. Since honesty compels him to allow others to think of him, what before God he confesses himself to be. Yet he is far from acquiescing in his sinfulness, for he hungers and thirsts after righteousness, longing to grow in grace and in goodness. We see him next with others out in the human community. His relationship with God does not cause him to withdraw from society, nor is he insulated from the world's pain. On the contrary, he is in the thick of it, showing mercy to those battered by adversity and sin. He is transparently sincere in all his dealings and seeks to play a constructive role as a peacemaker. Yet he is not thanked for his efforts, but rather opposed, slandered, insulted, and persecuted on account of the righteousness for which he stands and the Christ with whom he is identified. Such is the man or woman who is blessed, that is, who has the approval of God and finds self-fulfillment as a human being. I don't think I can say it any better. A wonderful picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. A wonderful picture for us as we dwell on these things to think, Lord, am I following you? Or have I let my own sin Keep me from doing those things. And if I have, Lord, please forgive me. Please give me your strength. Please give me your Holy Spirit. I need you. I need you each and every day, each and every hour. Let's, uh, let's pray this morning in closing. Father, we, we thank you, Lord. You are so good to us. Uh, you truly are in all your dealings. And as we, we've mentioned, Lord, we don't know the reasons for everything that happens, and it's okay because you are in control and you are still reigning on your throne. You are sovereign, God, and we trust and have faith in you. As your word tells us, you take the things that Satan has meant for evil and you turn them into good. That you have a desire for goodness in our life. And we thank you. We pray that even as the, the kids are up here displaying the 
all the things that we need in our life, the armor of God that you give us, that it would be real in our own lives, that as we wake up each morning, we would be putting these things on to know that you are there with us, that you have not left us alone. And ultimately, it's to be victorious as we go out in the battle each and every morning, because it is a battle not against one another, but against the authorities and principalities, the things of this world that are opposed to Christ. And we want to be called your children, and we want to display the characteristics that Christ displayed. And we don't want to be a part of those other things, Lord. You have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. You have called us to put on the new self as we read in Colossians. You have called us to display the gifts of your Son and the gifts of the Spirit. So I pray you'd go before us this morning as we leave. I pray you would encourage our hearts, continue to uplift us, continue to keep us until we gather together again, Lord. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.